This evening I'd like to talk about the practice and the fruition of renunciation. I'd like to begin with a poem by Mary Oliver. It says, every year everything I have ever learned in my lifetime leads back to this, the fires and the black river of loss, whose other side is salvation whose meaning none of us will ever know. To live in this world, you must be able to do three things. To love what is mortal, to hold it against your bones, knowing your own life depends on it. And when the time comes to let it go, to let it go. Renunciation is a practice and it has a fruition. And this evening I'd like to explore or to reflect about what, about what renunciation means in our lives as lay practitioners and our lives as women. And first I'd very much like to invite you to naturalize the word renunciation to let it sit in your heart, your mind, to just sense what it feels like, renunciation. To get a sense of what it might be for this word to be a natural part of your vocabulary, to befriend it, to sense what it might feel like for you to acknowledge that you are practicing in a renunciate tradition. And mostly everything we do when we sit on our cushion and when we walk on our walking path is really learning about the landscape of renunciation. It's learning how to let go. Now, renunciation unargue unarguably lies at the heart of a path of awakening and a path of freedom. And it, it's sometimes said that there are two pillars that support and that are central to a path of liberation, that one is renunciation and the other is compassion. And in truth, both of these qualities of renunciation and compassion are responses to suffering. And both are dedicated to bringing suffering to an end. All of us here and elsewhere, we sit and we walk and we live in the landscape of our minds, our bodies, our hearts, our lives. And we see over and over again, sometimes we don't want to see, but if we look closely, we do see over and over again the way that suffering and struggle is caused. And we do perhaps spend a lot of time resisting that seeing, or we try to explain it, or fix it, or get rid of it, or pretend it's not there. But I think when we do strip away these layers, 
we do see that at the heart of so much suffering and struggle is this reality of clinging and grasping and identifying. And that whenever that happens, whenever it happens to anything at all, it's almost like we immediately begin to step away from the way things are and to step into the landscape of struggle. It's almost like volunteering for suffering. Mm -hmm. So renunciation is the response of wisdom and compassion, and it's surely needed. You know, when we look at this world with all its terrible torment and suffering and division and fear, we really get a sense of the size of the cloth of pain in our world and perhaps begin to also understand that all the responses that can make a difference need to be rooted in compassion. It is almost as if suffering is a parent that has two children, that suffering is the parent, the mother of renunciation and compassion. Although from the standpoint of delusion and confusion, Suffering is the parent of two different children. One is aversion and the other is resistance. So I, th I think it's very important to acknowledge from the outset that the practice of renunciation is not fashionable. In fact, it's not even a word we use, is it? It's a little about, I think, of two words in this teaching that we hardly ever use in our culture. One's renunciation, the other's equanimity. But it's not fashionable. And for most people, actually, it's not really seen as a very attractive prospect. Even, even when it's kind of, it's important, it's sort of, importance is kind of admired as an ideal. Sometimes wonder why renunciation is given so much importance in this tradition and teaching. And it is because renunciation is a practice of freedom. And in this teaching, renunciation, rather than being presented as something dismal and bleak to pursue, you know, a very grim renunciate's life, the practice of renunciation, instead, over and over again, is actually described as a practice of happiness, as a practice of joy, and that its fruition is, is a profound happiness and joy. You know, Ajahn Chah, he once said, you know, if you let go a little, you have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you have a lot of peace. And if you let go completely, you have complete peace. The fruition of renunciation is the spaciousness of heart that is at peace with all things. Renunciation is a practice of fearlessness, and its fruition is profound fearlessness. It is a practice of wisdom, of aligning our hearts with the way things actually are, and its fruition is an unshakable wisdom. Renunciation is a practice of peace, of laying down the arguments with all things. And above all, it's a practice of kindness. 
because it is about finding a way to end the struggles and torments, the harshness and cruelty that we can feel inwardly. And its fruition is the liberated heart, the free heart. In fact, in this teaching, liberation and renunciation are words that are used interchangeably. I'd like to offer you some historical context for the teaching of renunciation. When, when the young prince Siddhartha ventured out of his palace of comfort and encountered aging, sickness, and death in the world, it was the sight of the renunciate in the crowd that rescued Siddhartha from despair and hopelessness. It was almost as if the first three heavenly messengers of aging and sickness and death, they almost described the landscape of unavoidable pain and difficulty in this life. Because we do age, we do sicken, we will die. So too all we love. The fourth heavenly messenger of the renunciate in the crowd was almost a metaphor for a path or a sense of possibility. The renunciate in the crowd was a metaphor for a free heart. Now, 2,600 years ago, renunciation was a pretty extreme option. You know, people would, you know, if you bear in mind, the culture 2,600 years ago was defined by duty. By, by fulfilling your duty in the community, in your family. So to enter, so people would leave the, leave the world and leave their families. In fact, when people entered into a renunciate's life 2,600 years ago, their families would hold funerals for them because they knew that they would never, ever see them again. But this was a culture that existed at the time that the Buddha lived, and it was a culture that Siddhartha and the Buddha drew upon, and to some extent very much continued that culture. He spoke so often about this movement from home into homelessness. And for many people at the Buddha's time and in that culture, the invitation to join him in this homeless life <coughs> was actually a step into a greater freedom. What it did was it allowed people a route of escape from the rigidity of caste and status and identity that dominated and governed people's lives. Now, for women 2,600 years ago, Entering the homeless life, often called the noble life, actually, apart from death, was pretty much the only escape from a culture and a society that dictated their roles at that time, where a woman really was nothing without marriage or children, where she could be sold into marriage, where she could be banished from her home when she was old, where she was stripped of respect if she didn't conform, where she was devoid of autonomy. And there are so many poems from this time of these first Buddhist women 
that, that embody and express a sense of relief of the possibility of another life, another way of being. One of the nuns at that time wrote, free, I am free, by means of the three crooked things, mortar, pestle, and my crooked husband. I am free from birth and death and all that dragged me back. Another nun wrote, at last free, at last I am a woman free, no more tied to the kitchen, stained amid the stained pots, no more bound to the husband who thought me less than the shade he wove with his hands, no more anger, no more hunger. I sit now in the shade of my own tree, meditating thus, I am happy, I am serene. And this sense of emancipation felt by these women was really being relieved of what was called the misfortune of a female birth. And they were courageous women. Renunciation does ask us tremendous courage because every act of letting go, small and large, takes us into unknown territory territory that is not governed by the endless endeavors to secure our identity and safety through what are largely futile efforts of clinging, craving, and becoming. Because if we really look clinging identification in the, in the eye, we can see that a lot of it is about securing this sense of I am, I have, even, sadly, even when that territory is unsatisfactory. Now, throughout history, there's this movement into homelessness. It was a tremendous act of, of courage and audacity by their, these women, and their, their path was often a very lonely journey because there was so little, and nobody was applauding them, nobody was hardly supporting them. And, you know, in the past, at least conformity to conventional models had been rewarded with approval. But I think when we look at our own lives now, although our lives are so different from these women of the past, somehow this heart of renunciation and what it asks of us is the same for us today as it was for these women 2,600 years ago. Because we see that the journey, this journey, this path of renunciation does ask of us a kind of fearlessness as we move from what we know into what is unknown, as we move from what is familiar to what is unfamiliar, as we move from clinging to renunciation. The movement into homelessness I think is very, very often associated with the monastic order. But we get a little taste of this when we come on retreat. I think probably for all of you here, there are renunciations that you make simply to come and to be here. And when you arrive, there are even more renunciations to make because you're asked to let go of the avenues of distraction that can govern your lives. 
Silence is a small taste of letting go of identity. You know, none of us go around here, you know, with a name tag, you know, proclaiming our status in the world and how we should be related to. Coming on retreat, you let go of the control mechanisms that can order your day. You notice that not everyone is given a bell. <laughs> we have one bell. You notice to end the sittings, we don't offer it to you, right? <laughs> so in many ways, the kind of setup of a retreat, although it's not always obviously apparent, the schedule, the simplicity, the silence, I would say these are all stealth mechanisms of renunciation. <laughs> We're sneaking it in here, whether you like it or not. And now, centuries ago, I have to say, the Buddha did point out that leaving one's home and leaving the world did not a renunciate make. And any monk or nun today will tell you that beneath the dignity and the simplicity of the robes, there can be plenty of clinging and craving and aversion going on. You know, who has the better robes? Who's got the best hut? Who's got more dessert in their alms bowl? Who's got the most views and opinions? <coughs> now that we, just as we know that Despite all the efforts and letting go that is needed to come on a retreat, sitting on a cushion and walking slowly does not entirely a renunciate make. Mm -hmm. That the forces of craving and aversion are very powerful. That the habits of identification and grasping can feel relentless. Some of you, and I'm not, you know, I just please don't be embarrassed, but, you know, how often do we get on a retreat and we are immediately trying to rearrange our world? You know, if we could, we would have brought our own furniture. And, you know, have I got the roommate I want? You know, have I got the room I want? Have I got the yogi job I need? You know, have I got this, that, and the other? You know, the other interview group sounds like they're having more fun. I should be in that one. Now, none of this is to be judged or blamed. Huh? Really, don't take it personally. Huh? None of this is to be judged or blamed, but isn't it relentless? Hmm? Isn't it relentless? And isn't renunciation just so hard for us? And in some ways that we don't always recognize, just so scary. Just so scary to take that step into, into not knowing, into not being in control. And yet life is constantly slapping us in the face with this. Perhaps some of the outer renunciations we make, it, it allows us in many ways to be more intimate and aware of the energy of suffering and craving, the energy of aversion and clinging. At times feels impenetrable. At times feels impenetrable. And it's hard, it's not always easy to recognize. You know, when I first practiced in Asia, you know, I, I, mean, I thought I was a pretty good renunciate, you know, I mean, sort of, you know. 
but you know, like I lived in this, you know, on the mountainside, you know, and first I had this little house on a mountainside, Himalayas, looking out, you know, pretty good. Rats, but, you know, uh, scorpions too, uh, but still pretty good, you know. But I decided there were too many people walking by nearby during the day. So I moved a little higher up in the mountain, you know. Still rats and scorpions, but a little quieter. No, no, there was still too much going on, you know. There was too, too much going on around me. People would walk, but after all, they were disturbing my practice. That's how I used to think. It was disturbing my practice. Isn't that amazing? So I went higher up in the mountain, you know. I was really high up now, like there was no people, you know. <laughs> There was no people. I was so high up, only go, you know, the, the kind of herders, shepherds, you know, came through, except there were monkeys. <laughs> Narayan had squirrels. I had monkeys and a tin roof. And they used to bound onto my roof. And I had blankets over the windows. You know, there's no way the world was going to disturb my practice. You know, monkeys jumping on my roof. You know, and one day when I found myself outside screaming at the monkeys (laughs) for disturbing my practice, I sort of got it a little bit, you know. (laughs) Sort of got it a little bit. Like, where was the suffering, really? (laughs) Where was the suffering? Hmm? If anything at all, awareness does start to help us to be more honest with ourselves. Hmm? Now, we might feel that because we don't live the monastic life, that renunciation is somehow irrelevant to us. But if we long for happiness and kindness, If we long for calmness and peace and freedom, renunciation has everything to do with us. We might begin to notice that every time we get entangled in craving or aversion or clinging, two things happen. One, the first thing that happens is we start to do a lot of storytelling. We start to do a lot of explaining and arguing And the other thing that happens is that we get immediately pretty unhappy. We begin to struggle. This teaching is a teaching of imminence, and the clues to happiness actually lie in unhappiness. You know, the clues to calmness actually lie in the experience of agitation. And isn't it true that pretty much everything in this life that appears has that message written on it. Love it deeply and let it go. There is a poem, again, from one of these, one of our ancestors, that speaks of this second dimension of renunciation. The nun said, I gave gave up my house and set out into homelessness. I gave up my cattle and all that I loved. I gave up desire and hate. My ignorance was thrown out. I pulled out craving along with its root. Now I am quenched and still. But there was a sixth century nun who spoke to the frustration she experienced 
after relinquishing so much and yet continuing to find the peace that she longed for, so elusive. And she says, I've done everything right and followed the rule of my teacher. I'm not lazy or proud. Why haven't I found peace? Bathing my feet, I watched the bathwater spill down the slope. I concentrated my mind the way you train a good horse. Then I took a lamp and went into my cell, checked the bed and sat down on it. I took a needle and pushed the wick down. When the lamp went out, my mind was freed. Now, it's a frustration maybe you can perhaps also relate to, you know, because I know that many of you work so hard to get here, to find this precious small time of stillness. And yet you get here and still the mind can be raging and the heart can feel so uneasy. But each time we are able to let go of craving and aversion, the second layer of renunciation, we get just a little sense that we're putting out the fire of suffering. In that moment, your heart has a little taste of freedom. And it's so important that we experience that taste, feel it to acknowledge it, that taste of freedom and peace that comes when we put down craving and aversion. Now we don't usually, most of us, have to look very far to find the waves large and small of craving. You know, the sense of lack, of not enough, of not having enough, of not being good enough, the restlessness of need. And we perhaps begin to see that each time we follow those urges, it is almost as if we are affirming and reinforcing a sense of insufficiency and a lack of freedom. We learn in the practice to be more still, to let the waves arise and to also let them pass, to learn to rest with what is and taste that freedom of just letting that urge, that impulse of craving just fall away. We don't have to look very far here or anywhere in our life to hear the whispers and the shouts of aversion, judgment, comparing, irritation, blame, intolerance, impatience. Can we just know it? and not follow the whispers into avoidance and resistance and endlessly trying to fix the moment to serve us. Because every time we do that, again, it's almost as if we're affirming and reinforcing fear. Can we be still just to know it and just to let it go? Let it go. We taste the courage and the steadfastness that happens when we step out of the fire. We taste the freedom. It is the happiness and the peace that is born of renunciation. You know, our first exposures to renunciation in our life have often been involuntary. 
people we love die or we are separated from people that we care about. There may be of conflicts that have made us being divorced from people we've previously loved. We mourn the loss of much. We experience the disappointment of expectation and frustration. We experience all the effects of impermanence that many things don't last as long as we want them to that people and events change in ways that are sometimes different, difficult for us to accept. We don't always get what we want. Our bodies change in ways it's hard to accept. It is, if, it is as if impermanence and renunciation are married together. But you know, involuntary renunciation, it often feels that things are taken away from us. You know, that life feels unfair or unjust in some way. And involuntary renunciation can often lead us to associate letting go with pain and desolation. But if we can just move a little bit inwardly from the positions of fear and resistance and craving and aversion into a very deep understanding of the rhythms of change in this life, the rhythms of impermanence, that all things can be held with kindness, with compassion. Then we can begin to move from the pain of involuntary renunciation into a more natural acceptance and grace and letting go. Of course, loss remains sad. Disappointment and frustration remain sad. But sadness is part of being human. It is part of loving and caring. But voluntary renunciation is much more the willingness to align our hearts with the way things actually are and to really see that to release craving and aversion is to release suffering. It is a timeless truth. It is a timeless truth. It is the truth of the way to peace and stillness. It is not easy to live in such a way, but it is so much harder on ourselves not to. A Zen teacher was asked, what is the secret of your happiness? He said, the complete and the unrestricted cooperation with the unavoidable. <laughs> this is life. Whenever we are in a state of non-cooperation, we're in a state of argument. Often locked in craving our aversion, it locks us into a perpetual argument with the unavoidable. We argue with impermanence. And our arguments are frequently very busy and noisy, at least inwardly. But can we learn to listen to those arguments as messengers, as really the fourth heavenly messenger? That all of our arguments are delivering to us one simple instruction and encouragement to let go, 
It's not a prescription for passivity. Goodness me, there are realms of injustice and the unacceptable in this world that ask for our engagement and dedication to their transformation. But then in my experience, certainly the engagement that truly makes a difference is very rarely born of craving and aversion, but of stillness and clarity and courage and the deep willingness to see things as they are. Letting go doesn't mean walking away from the things we dislike or fear. That's the shadow side of renunciation. It means staying near and staying present. It means a commitment to the end of suffering, of finding freedom within the difficult, about cooling the fires of discontent. There's a nun, a 12th century nun, she wrote, meditating at midnight, meditating at noon, a mind like autumn comes to the way's deep heart. Under motionless waves, fish and dragons freely leap. In the sky without limits, only the moonlight stays. The first dimension of renunciation is disentangling from the busyness of the world. This usually means disentangling from the busyness of our own minds. The second dimension of renunciation is to let go of the agitation of craving and aversion. But the third dimension of renunciation, and perhaps the most challenging of all, is the renunciation of self-view and all of the clinging and pain that is born of self-view. This is a very deep practice of freedom and its fruit is an unshakable freedom. Perhaps it becomes clear to us really how much fear and anxiety lies beneath clinging. Just it is often fear and anxiety that leads us to heroically try to ensure and improve ourself, ensure the continuity of ourself. We really see how self-view manifesting in the world produces even more fear and anxiety. You know, I am, I need to be seen, I need to be seen in a certain way, I need to hold this view of who I am. And one of the most profound invitations of this path and teaching is actually to see the emptiness of self-view and to see how self-view is mostly shaped and formed moment to moment by whatever is identified within the moment. That is what gives substance to the view. You know, I'm happy, I'm sad, I'm unhappy, you know, I'm restless, I'm worthless. You know, I'm, I'm amazing. That one doesn't come in so much. But, you know, there, there's a lot of self-view that comes in throughout our day. In. We begin to see moment to moment when nothing at all is identified with or grasped hold of. There is no formation of self-view. Now, this is actually the heart of the Buddha's teaching, and it is the essence of liberation. As I mentioned the other night, nothing at all clung to as me or mine. 
Now this understanding has actually been celebrated by women over ages. And this non-clinging is perhaps the most profound definition and description of a homeless life and a noble life. There was an old nun, she wrote, she said, above the highest peak of the mountain, the round moon is alone, cold and bright, pure and poor. It does not possess a single thing. If someone should come along and ask what this nun is doing, she sits for long hours on her meditation mat, enjoying herself. <laughs> and perhaps when we possess nothing at all, in terms of self-view, when nothing at all is clung to as me as mine, we too can sit for long hours just simply enjoying. We might begin to see that the degree of renunciation that we are able to embrace in this life is also the degree of happiness and freedom that we enjoy. Now, self-view is a very curious creature because sometimes it's a very long story, isn't it? Back as far as we can remember, it seems to begin even before we were born, and sometimes it does. I am sad, I'm fearful, I'm inadequate, I'm wonderful, I'm beautiful, I'm whatever. Times the story of self-view has been told to us by others. You are wounded, you are inadequate, you are lovely. Sometimes self-view is just formed in nanoseconds, you know, shaped by clinging to a thought or an emotion or an event, and here I am again. I'm terrible, I'm amazing, I'm audacious, I'm wonderful, I'm a failure. And we can only actually know for ourselves where we are prone to make our home, a flimsy, a fragile home, where we are prone to make our home on the ground of clinging. And it's important, we know. There is a short list. <laughs> There's a short list. We could make a very long list. But these are some of the underlying, underlying impulses, I think, in our lives that can make really this self-use so strong. The need to be right. The need to be approved of. The need to be loved, the need to be helpful, the need to be useful. Now think about this. How much our lives, can our self-view can resolve, revolve around feeling the satisfaction of those things. We could compose a much, much longer list. But we often see that self-view is built upon the ground of insufficiency. And everything, every single thing we do in this practice is to learn to stand on the steady ground of confidence and sufficiency. Perhaps we begin to see that moment to moment in our practice that essentially renunciation is renunciation of impossibility. It is renunciation of suffering. 
and the fruit of that renunciation is unshakable and vast fearlessness. And this is perhaps the true homelessness. There's a couple of poems I want to end with from, again, some of our four mothers. He said, I was passionate, filled with longing. I searched far and wide, but the day that the truthful one found me, I was at home. Understand the ordinary mind and realize one is naturally complete. Ask urgently who you were before your mother and father were born. When you have seen through the method that underlies all, when you have seen through the method that underlies all, the mountain blossoms and flowing streams will rejoice with you. We go have just a couple of moments quietly together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.